Hello and welcome to Connected, a podcast about people, ideas, marketing, technology and everything that's good. I'm ASD, a digital man here at Mediacom. I'm Sue Yuneman, Chief Strategy Officer at Mediacom. And joining us in the studio, uh, I'm very excited to say, is, is Rob Norman. The Chief Digital Officer of Group M and the Chairman of Group M North America. Ah, well, yeah, you sort of take a, stolen my thunder here. I've got a, <laughs> a bit on, so you are responsible for Group M's overall digital strategy and development and leads the digital team in Maxis, MEC, Mediacom and Mindshare. Well, I think that's what you have in your official bio that yes, goes out to sort of places you make speeches and, and sort of job applications mm-hmm. for non-executive directorship <laughs> and to say that I uh, I lead them but I think in a in a more of a spiritual way than a practical sure. way so I don't think for a moment that anyone should think that all of the digital organizations those companies sort of ask me for either my inspiration or my advice and much less my permission sure okay well that leads us quite neatly on to the first question in what is the the typical week for a chief digital officer of Group M. You basically mean what does he actually what do, do you, then? What, that's the first question I say, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to Rob Norman, and what, what questions would you ask him, apart from what's the future of programmatic, it's always, what does he actually do? Well, I always say that I'm a, a small person with a remarkably large carbon footprint. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm sort of the patron saint of the world's airlines, and my typical week actually isn't typical at all, because I get invited very nicely by people to go and speak in various parts of the world, sometimes by clients, sometimes by trade organizations um, and others. And when those invitations come, particularly when someone else is paying for the airfare, Mm. I'll call our colleagues in that part of the world, wherever it is, and say, I'm coming. Could you mind sweating the overhead a bit for a week? Mm -hmm. And depending on where you go, they'll either ignore you completely or set you up with about 71 client meetings, at (laughs) which point you're meant to predict the future of the universe in their market, the world, and in the category they operate in. And so I try and do that. Now, the consequence of that is that, as always, you learn more than you impart because the reactions of the people you listen to and the business issues of anything from a packaged goods company in India to an automotive company in Australia to wherever it might be tend to give you a new insight into consumer behavior and what the challenges around that are. What that in turn leads to is you steal with pride and you take that information and you add it to the yeah. other 150 years of your, your career and hopefully mm-hmm. make the next contribution you make to someone a bit more useful i also use it often as the inspiration to write things and i write quite a lot of stuff some of which never escapes the walls of of group m and our agencies but much that does and we're publishing this year next year interaction 2016 uh, next week in fact and it's yeah. the 10th one of those which is the annual labor of love and i also write fairly prolifically for the linkedin influencer program and i have many followers uh, on that and as I always say to people I'm surprisingly huge in Bangladesh <laughs> so my typical week really is is that and then I get asked questions by colleagues often ones that don't get thought about all that much in the daily round of the business and very often asked um, as I was this very week by someone at Mediacom in the UK which I think started we need to up our game on Snapchat in respect of a pitch that's in prospect for a large package goods company how do we do that and making the connections with other parts of WPP and Group M to help that that happen so it's an atypical but typical week I mean it's an an awful lot of talking sense so if anybody out there is wondering about 
anything that they'd like to know about digital and are afraid to ask, then Rob's LinkedIn blog is a good place to start. Um, you're obviously at the top, top of the digital world, Rob. Hmm. How did you, uh, how did you, how did, how did you get there really? And, and, and when did you realize that that was your ambition? Well, the top's an interesting definition. You know, if you put it in a sporting metaphor, I'm more John Motson than I am Harry Kane. Um, in that he goes out and actually plays the game and, yeah. and, and delivers it. And Motti had some interesting and hopefully insightful commentary and a little bit of entertainment on the side of makes himself available for parody. I do many of those things sure. myself. And I think that I've been extraordinarily lucky over the years to have a good observer seat at the highest level of the digital universe and get to meet the people that actually make these things happen. It's kind of interesting standing three feet away from Mark Zuckerberg when he's talking to a group of people about whatever it is, as I was last Thursday um, in, in Menlo Park. And I've had those experiences and have them with a degree of regularity with people like Jeff Wiener, which we've talked to refer, with Mediacom a couple of times um, at LinkedIn, but also Jack Dorsey at, at Twitter and Dick Costello before him, and less so with Larry Page and, and Sergey Brin, but many people in that kind of stratosphere. And it's interesting to listen to their narrative. And I always think that these people have three narratives. They have a narrative that's really obvious, which is the one to the street. They have another narrative which is the one that is largely internal and sometimes stretches to their client community as well. And a kind of inner narrative, if you like, where you can sort of get a sense of the issues they're thinking about, about the future of their business. And it's fun to watch the migration of the inner narrative to the kind of internal corporate narrative mm. and out to mm. the street narrative. And I've seen that a lot over time. And it gives you, I hope, an ability not just to sort of understand where those businesses are now, but directionally where they're going. And I think we live in a world of, 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 of really trying to foresee the trajectory of businesses because if we start to action something that is in market now and today's the day we start thinking yeah. about it, then by the time we've moved, it's actually quite difficult for us to be contemporary and relevant and ahead. And listening to Mark last week, he answered a question from uh, Laurent Farachi, who's the, the CMO of Reckitt Benkies, uh, and in response to a talk someone had given about how they set about launching Facebook Live Video, which they did in two months from nothing. And what happened was that Mark had decided that Live was a key part of the Facebook future. He then put a group of people, a large group of people, on what they referred to there as on lockdown and said, go build this and make it work don't mm. do anything else and the client asked the question he says so culturally help us understand how us large enterprises can be as nimble as you who are also now a large enterprise and mark sort of stopped because he's a very thoughtful fellow and said it's the technology infrastructure it's nothing to do with the culture because what they've built on an open architecture basis is a prodigious technology capability both in terms of the ability to write code to publish that code mm. to scale that code across the world and across applications and at the same time a bandwidth infrastructure and a speed of processing and speed of distribution that no one's ever seen before mm. and so 
he believes that the platform they've created has allowed people then to be incredibly responsive and get something done which is interesting because your instinct is that this is a kind of foxy bright company with young people in it which of course it is but it's an engineering culture first that happens to produce consumer facing products that happen to be monetized Mm -hmm. primarily by advertising so how did you get to where you are because you you talked a lot about the circles that you're in and Mm. it and and the white can i say and the white house yeah i was with a group of people at the white house and joe biden did come to our meeting and we did have a session with valerie jarrett who's a big policy advisor too um, the president last week. It's one of those kind of however old you are stuff and whatever yeah. you've seen, there's something about going to the White House and you know yeah. being close to those people. And uh, that is, that's really quite inspiring. And it's a very interesting time in America, of course, at the moment. And I'm sure that people around the MediaCom world are aware of what's going on in the primary season um, in the United States. But I think there's a much broader issue and in the great sort of name dropping category i despise panel discussions both yeah. being on them and even more watching them because i quite enjoy the sound of my own voice but other people's is you know my own platitudes are quite enjoyable other people's are just unbearable and i was at a dinner that was hosted by comcast nbcu a couple of mondays ago in the rainbow room which is on the 66th floor of, mm. um, of 30 rock where 30 rock um doesn't come from as it happens but anyway and there was a panel discussion moderated by lester holt who's the host of the nbc nightly news incredibly erudite and smart guy and his panelists were robert rubin who's a former uh, secretary of the treasury um general colin powell and henry kissinger and if you have to go to a panel discussion yep. then good yes, luck with that's that not a bad one. and 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 in that i and then i looked at the seating plan and it turned out i was sitting next to general powell um, for dinner and I said on my Facebook post we spoke mostly in generalities uh, but what I had a few minutes to do was kind of think gosh how am I going to start a good monologue for the general to have an interesting conversation with himself mm. that I will also enjoy and I asked him because I'd become a citizen in November mm. what does it mean to be an American now and what should America um, mean to the world so that was an interesting variation on the, the front row seat which tells you um, a lot about America and Americans and, and you know, a lot about consumer behaviours and the needs of people. And it's very interesting watching this primary season to see the extraordinary polarisation of consumer sentiment in the US. So we have this bizarre combination of the lowest unemployment for a generation, the stock market within fringes of its all-time high, interest rates at something close to zero. We've pretty much exited the major wars that we've been involved in there is no draft like there was in vietnam and the vietnam period yet it hasn't affected and trickled down whatever that means to a significant proportion of the population who are enormously disaffected and it's intriguing to know that the official income level to define someone in poverty for a family of four in new york city is twenty four thousand dollars a year or less and so there is staggering inequality in the country, despite the fact that many people are doing better. And I think what's happening in America is not dissimilar in a way with how people are feeling here about the Brexit Mm. vote and so forth, is they're seeing all of these things that in future former generations they might have accepted, and they're now not accepting them because it's what about 
me yeah. and how it's affecting uh, my life. And it's, uh, I think we live in incredibly challenging times. There's some comfort in it, though. If you look at the Smithsonian data, they have this extraordinary couple of charts to show you how many people have died in violence of wars and murders and mm. terrorism every year since 1900. And we're running at an all-time low. Yeah. at the moment, which is kind of exciting, but perceptually, and part of that perception is driven by the news cycle, 24-hour yeah. news, by social media and so forth, is that the ability for people to become alarmed and fearful, even though the odds of it actually happening to them are, are remote, is remarkable. And it's interesting how that's flowing into the kind of discourse from the political system. And it's very, very easy to ferment um, negative sentiment at the moment, sure. more easy than ever. You're evidently culturally and socially aware. Are they the skills that got you into the position that you are in now? How have you got to where you are now? Well, I think the skill that got me to where I am, well, apart from luck, and let's make sure that's included, and it is sort of true that the harder you work, the luckier you, you get and all that, yeah. but I, I didn't actually ever kill myself in the process. But actually it was quite a lot of good fortune. So I was going to work at CIA um, one day in, in, in 1993 and I was on the Jubilee line and a man uh, was sitting next to me, clearly an American. He was wearing a trench coat and khaki trousers and sort of a pair, and the khaki trousers always a little bit too short in relation to well, the shoes. I was a very American thing of that, of that time. And he was wearing shoes that were sort of dark brown and appeared to be made out of polished walnut, incredibly sort of strong, sturdy shoes that could last several lifetimes. And as he got off the tube, he left a copy of the Wall Street Journal on the seat next to him and so I picked it up because there wasn't because now of course there's a newspaper on every single seat of the yeah. tube after you get on it once uh, but then this was an unusual thing and I picked up the Wall Street Journal which of course was a broadsheet in those days and in it there was a one-page visualization something we would call an infographic if we saw it today and the visualization was of the Time Warner full-service network trial in Orlando Florida which was under development which was going to be the first broadband interactive trial and as in all of these things it was about how you could change the ending of movies and interactive oh, yeah. video which of course no one <laughs> ever did and as with to. all of those things yeah. in those days it included the Domino's pizza ordering application sure. you know, so it's like all in cartelomatic system always have sort of Spotify or Pandora in them in those days everything had Domino's pizza yeah. applications in them. and so I had to go from there to uh, to Leicester Square and was reading it and I took the paper and I actually walked straight into Chris Ingram's um, office, who was the chairman and, and CEO of, of, of CIA. And I said, this is interesting. And he said, oh, you should do a presentation about it. So I wrote this presentation or deck, as they insist on calling them in hmm. America. And, and I, my predictions in it, and this was in late 1993, were, were 100% accurate, apart from I didn't mention the, the internet in it. But other than that, it yeah. was, it was sort of spot on. And, as a result of that, we started talking to people about it. Chris was suitably curious, and we started CI Interactive in October 1994. And I think the first thing we did was we made the first CD-ROM for the in-park kiosks at Legoland in, in Windsor. And we did one of the first ever online integrations the following year in which we did a brand integration for Lloyds Bank. Um, with the FT's online budget coverage. And that was way back in late 94 mm. or the beginning of, I guess, March 95 was that. And then it went on from there and we built the Euro 96, believe it or not, dot com wow. uh, website and yeah. so on. And everything had to be optimized for 14.4 bandwidth and 
occasionally people luxuriated in 28.8. And fortunately, I was in a position where I got myself interested in something and had enough of a context of how advertising and marketing had worked till then, because I'd been just experienced enough to have that context and really fell asleep on the right mushroom. And the mushroom grew, and eventually we took the CIA digital business sort of globally by, in a, in a way, but realistically in Europe and Asia. Then we merged with MediaEdge, which added the US and Latin America to that. And it enabled me at all of these phases to remain curious. And curiosity for me is as important as ambition. And if you can add curiosity, take that curiosity and create context out of it and context, whether it's geographical category or functionally, then you can have a good long um, career doing it. And the, funnest part has been just knowing you can add to things you already knew and question your assumptions and suppositions and you're right some of the time and you're wrong some of the time and one of the things I do when I write the interaction thing every year bizarrely is that I read all of the ones from the previous years to see yeah. how the narrative has changed and what was right and what was wrong and in this one I've got one big admission about something I was singularly wrong about. You're going to tell us now. Yeah gonna... so I was very doubting about the world exclusive. Of world exclusive, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> Gosh, this just in. Um, <laughs> I made some remarks in 2012 about Netflix and what I thought the future of the Netflix business yeah. was. And my comment at the time was that I found it hard to believe that Netflix, because it seemed to me that new content of the right format for Netflix, the increment that was being produced each year was rather small and compared to the back catalogue if you yeah. like that they started with and I doubted their ability to maintain and grow their subscriber growth so I wasn't sure they were going to be able to refresh the need <coughs> as much as um, as they would need to for that to happen and of course what they did is they responded to that actually of course they didn't respond to that they already knew and they went down a very similar road to hbo and how the subscription mm. model works then when you produce new and original material that is attractive enough and significant enough that it keeps people paying their x dollars or pounds a month and that was the birth of netflix originals and house of cards mm. and so forth and of course the rest is mm. is history and so we admitted in this one that I was I was wrong. So so there's been clear pivot points in your career, which mm. you know where you took a gamble, you took a risk. Yeah. Do you think? I mean, first of all, are there any other ones of those? And, well, the, well, the yeah. most notable one is that when CIA or Tempest Group was holding company was acquired by WPP, yeah. we ended up merging CIA with the Media Edge, and so someone at our place. Um, said to WPP, um, do you have a handbook on or a playbook on how to do mergers? And of course it turned out the WPP had bought many, many companies but almost never merged any yeah, companies right. and certainly never merged any of the same size as each other. And one of the relatively few markets where the businesses were the same size was um, in the UK. And so the Media Edge was up in Greater London House in the building with Y&R. CIA was down in, in Paris Garden. And the Media Edge people, by and large, moved into Paris Garden. We had a new management structure, and it was a car crash, not through anyone's bad intentions or anything else. And it was decided at the 
Media Edge CIA, as it was called then, Global Exco, that they needed a, a Brit who sort of knew some of the people and knew some mm. of the clients and knew the press to go and sort this out. And I, meanwhile, was settled in comfortably to a kind of global chief digital overhead sort of job. And being put back in charge of a P&L at that time in a difficult situation was a real challenge. And I said to my colleagues, let's give this sort of two or three years, and if we could turn it around, I'd like my prize to be to move to the US, not for any particular reason, but I'd always wanted to, to live in New York. Mm. And if it doesn't work out, then it doesn't work out. So I started fantastically by losing our biggest client, I think, in the first um, three months, which was UIP, which was the distribution business for Universal Pictures and Paramount, uh, which was huge. And then discovered quite soon afterwards that there were a bunch of people in the company who were absolute soldiers actually on both sides, Media Edge people and CIA people, who were so committed to this business being successful. And they self-identified, and I was able to kind of bring them together. And we won a tiny movie studio uh, pitch from the people that made Bend It Like Beckham. Um, really, on the thanks to one of our employees, who I shall... Uh, Nicole, who was a, a wonder at the time, and a bunch of other people, and they turned it round. And at the same time, I was on the uh, IPA media uh, committee, and also on the committee was a man called Tom George, who at the time was at, at, at Zenith. And I thought, he's the kind of fellow we need. So I took a year to hire Tom. And finally, on Valentine's Day the following year, he gave up and agreed to join us because he couldn't bear taking my calls anymore. And then Tom really did the rest so i think i showed them where the corner yeah. was that they needed to turn tom took them through it and then i think they were agency of the year for three of the next four years and after the fourth year i said so i'm going to stop taking the credit now as i'd already lived in the u.s by two and a half years by then so that was if you like the biggest uh turning point because it kind of gave me permission to do um other things and then in 2000 and and 10, by which time Group M was a kind of fully formed object with Mediacom yeah. having arrived, um, and I was the chief digital officer then, I also became chief executive of the North American business. And that mm. was a remarkably, remarkably difficult yeah. um, job to do culturally. And then uh, eventually when Kelly Clark was running Maxis, he wanted to move back to the US and he was the ideal choice to put in charge of Group M uh, North America. And now he's he's with us still, but in a different capacity. And Brian Lesser, who was the CEO of Axis, is now running it. And they asked me uh, to be chairman, not because Brian needed my advice on how to run a media agency, but because I had sort of more contacts in the business on the yeah. vendor side, and I knew more clients, and I knew more of the people, and I knew where some of the bodies uh, were buried. So there have been a number of um, inflection points, and I do kind of have sleepless nights about a few things. Um, as a result of these, because I see inflection points all of the time now. Wow. And when I think about how Facebook has changed since Facebook started mm -hmm. and how it continues to change in the pace that it does and how I see the emergence of platforms like Snapchat, which I believe to be highly significant, but very hard to understand relative mm -hmm. to, to, it's to other it's media. It's different things from, well, from other social media. Well, and also it depends on what you think Snapchat is, because there's part of me that thinks that Snapchat's actually three different things. One is the messaging platform, which was what it started yeah. out as, yeah. which was, you know, not your father's Facebook sort of yeah, uh, yeah. open messaging. The other is this sort of live thing, which is Snapchat moments, which is yeah. when a much more kind of collective experience 
partly as participant and often as spectator. And this third piece, which is Snapchat Discover, which is this area within the Snapchat area in which publishers have started building Snapchat. And of course, the advertiser discovers a really comfortable place to be in because it's buying ads in a media carriage vehicle. Moments is kind of understandable, but I think they struggle a lot with the rest of Snapchat. Mm -hmm. And there's this huge sort of issue about how much we understand and how much we don't understand because no one will be able to tell you what percentage of all of the activity on Snapchat is discovered, what percentage of all the activity Mm -hmm. on Snapchat is moments and what percentage of all the activity on Snapchat. Despite the gazillion trigger bytes of data that are floating around. Well, and there's an interesting paradox in this, of course, is that the people in the world who have the most perfect data and Facebook and Google and LinkedIn and Twitter and Snapchat are among them are the ones most reticent to reveal that data. And it's always been important to advertisers and people who do what we do in media for a living to understand, if you like, the the social importance and significance of that. Because if it turns out, for example, that only 5% of people are actually using the Discover um, function on Snapchat and we know what the total user base of Snapchat is, then how significant is Discover in a broader sense? And I think quite often, despite the fact that we live in what should be the most fact-based era of our business, are making more faith-based decisions Mm. than we ever did before and i think there's an interesting paradox um in that and i think it's a a challenge and i think when martin sorrel calls out these companies on the grounds of sort of transparency and disclosure Mm. he's talking about those kinds of things and this phenomena of walled gardens which you've heard Mm. lots of talk about is very much part of that it turns out wall gardens are just fine if it happens to be your garden and your walls that's not so fine if you're on the outside um, oh, I'm going to try jump. I'm going to jump to the personal questions. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Go for it. I, uh, I was looking forward to that. Go on. Go it's for it. It's because you, you've talked about how you work hard and you, the luck you get, and the 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 running the North America business was incredibly difficult. Mm. So, what habits have you formed, routines, and processes have you mastered in order to help you develop to master those jobs or to get you to where you are now? Well, I don't think I did master that job, to be honest. I think that there was a a divide that had been allowed to grow up in the business over a period of time, and I think the divide operated on a couple of different levels. I think that we had very large entities in each of our agencies in North America which believed rightly or wrongly, that they had most of the answers to the mysteries of the universe within their own walls. So achieving collaboration between them for the greater good was difficult. I think we had a further divide between um, between the planning strategy and client management side of the business and the trading and execution yes. side of the business. And I don't think we bridged that properly. And I think fault lay on both sides and I think I did an okay job in getting the agencies to communicate to one another and an okay job thinking that there was a value to the group eminence of it all but I don't think I did anywhere near an okay enough job from either side of either gaining the confidence and tolerance of the planning and client management community or the planning and the tolerance of the trading community to get them to work together Effectively, and I think Kelly did a, a, a much better job of that than than, than I did. Um, in terms of of routines, I think it's it's important to listen more than I do. So I would advise people to work with their ears a bit more than than I do. I think it's important always to 
be as straightforward with people and if you err on the side of indiscretion by telling people too much that's better than worrying about keeping your p's and q's and keeping things um secret from one person or another and i think it's important that people understand how other bits of the business are doing whether it's to be celebrated because they're doing well and what can you learn from them or because they're challenged and they need some help from other people because you know i know how many people there are in north america it, I know how many there are in North America, how many there are in Group M North America is differently. Yeah. Um, but there's there's 3,000 or so people there dotted around the country, although mainly in New York. And the fact of the matter is there's always a significant cohort of those people that need help, and helping them find that help and helping them ask for the help is, is really important. I think the other thing that's kind of curious about this is you go through your career early on and your aspiration is to be able to do the job that, your boss does as well if not better than your boss does it and then you get to an interesting place where you become a manager where you look at the people you manage and you have an expectation of yourself that you can do their job their job better than they can do their job and therefore you can be a mentor for them or you can be a disciplinarian because you have standards and one of the things that's happened most recently is that the speed of change has meant you can no longer do that and if you look at the group MXCO, for example, and try and find someone that wasn't already in a very senior management job before Facebook ever sold an ad, that will give you a sense of how much actual craft skill expertise there is in that group. So what that group has got to do has got to become a much more enabling group of people. It has to ask those people what they think good looks like mm -hmm. and who they would rate as better or best in the category and to enable those people to become top parity in that area and also to advocate for them inside the organization and i think that when the environment around you speeds up in terms of its relevant your style as a manager and what makes you a good manager is really important and you only have to meet mark zuckerberg who hasn't had his 31st birthday yet to understand that just because you have age and experience on your side in terms of maturity, what you have less of is expertise at the craft skills that the people that are working for doing it. And so being an enabler and advocate in that area, I think, is, is key to management now. Which to me sounds like a more, maybe more feminine view of leadership anyway. I don't know. And well, one I, would remark that there haven't been a lot of female leaders in the jobs that you're talking about. No, I think that's true. I and mean, I think on the, the, the sales side um, of our business, I think women have done phenomenally well. And it's interesting that the head of sales for Facebook, Carolyn Everson, and her mm. boss, Cheryl Sandberg, yeah. last time I looked, were, were both women. The CEO of Google in North America is Margot Georgiadis, yep. um, who's a woman. The CEO of Google in the UK um, is a woman. And you look around the TV business, even in the US, the head of sales of Turner and of CBS and of NBC, and of ABC, yeah. and of the New York Times, never mind the Condé Nast, which is kind of in a way more obvious, are all women. And so it's quite clear that women have absolutely broken through on the sales mm. side of the house, but less so on the agency side of the house. And I think there's a number of attendant challenges um, for that. We did some analysis and looked at a segment of our payroll which was defined as if they get paid that much they're in a position of either existing responsibility and almost certainly people we want to develop and see what the drop-off rates are in those people and what happens is they are considerable and it's not unconnected with 
the children, of course, and 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 work-life balance as it relates to to children. But I'm of the view that it's actually a sort of an ecosystem problem within the business, and I think that when a client decides on the 30th of June to issue an RFP that they want a response to on the 7th of July when the 4th of July which in America is family time if ever there was family time comes in between that is not a women executive or even a men executive friendly way of doing business and I think we do it as well because we then RFP the media owners and our partners and the media at the same time and we just speed things up and one of the things I'm very much hoping for is that as this issue becomes surfaced and clearer we don't just look at the numbers and about the opportunity we actually look at the way the business works together as a supply chain if you like and think about the behaviors we might change that don't compromise the effectiveness of the business but actually enable a broader range of lifestyles and life life stages to be successful and i think that's a a big issue for all of us. Okay, I, I, I am going to take it more personal now to one of our standard questions mm. that we ask everyone. Mm. Um, so if I was drawing a circle um, in chalk on the uh, ground to summon you as a genie, Rob, yeah. what five objects should I, should I place in my circle to summon you? Commonly available objects, so I have to be able to get, get them. Yeah, okay, yeah. you have to yeah. commonly be able to get them. So... I think you'd get it and hopefully you'll be able to find a question mark somewhere because <laughs> yeah. I yeah. absolutely love questions. That's really, really important. Anything that can act as a container for anything is very useful because I'm very interested in containers in terms of what their purpose might be applied for, what you can put in them, what they might. So are they container by design or something that can yeah. anything that can be used as a container yeah, bottles or saucepans or any any of those kinds of things i'm interested in bucket. okay. buckets as buckets are good and absolutely you them with a lid or without um i'm i i would say i'm ambidextrous as oh, that yes yeah. i could do lids or or yeah. no lids for preference i didn't know if that was two objects or no, not no, no, by, no bucket with a lid, one, uh, with a lid. By, yeah. by, by having a lid so i think those things are good i think my general theme is things that would arouse my curiosity um, you could put a pipe if you can find one oh, yeah. um, on them because they're not terribly fashionable. But I always enjoyed uh, Conan Doyle's description of Sherlock Holmes and the idea of the thing, something being a three-pipe problem, oh, referring to the course, amount of time, of often opium-induced, that was taken to, to yep. find the resolution um, to that. And I'd like an apple. Can I have an, an apple? Apple? apple. Yeah. Apple. Uh, you've got apple. One more, I think. What, what color apple? Oh, green. I, I'm sort of actually no, really more russet. That's I so think sort of proper Cox's apples yeah. are the ones that actually taste like apples, which gives them yeah. um, I love that. Uh, a, a, a great advantage. And I'd like some implement or other for uh, digging at things or picking at things like a trowel or a, something like that would be very useful. So Stick all of those things, all of those things would be helped because I think you can be very creative yeah, one way or another yeah. within yeah. and but also practical, which yeah. is good. Yeah. And you yeah. can plant the seeds of your apple in the pot as well so yeah you, you can and although it's an ex, it's an extraordinary <laughs> slow way of getting to the second apple it really um, is <laughs> but i mean that's yeah. that requires patience beyond yeah. beyond most of us so yes those would be some of the things that i would choose i remember um i was just i walked into a i used to run uh i cut my teeth on barclays uh and i walked into one of their meeting rooms after they had a meeting and they just had the word solutionizing on the wall that was fantastic so uh, always solutionizing in my head I always had this thought that whenever you see 
posters at airports in particular and it says blah 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 and then underneath it says a solutions company it's a sure yeah. sign that the company doesn't actually know what it does <laughs> so what we um, we did at uh, Mobile World Congress was uh, just going around taking pictures of the awful slogans which are caps. all like that just a random well, collection of three well words. You, you should do them at Demexco oh, as well yeah. the Demexco one is fun even fun anyway because you don't have to look at the slogans you just have to look at the name of the companies and imagine how they managed to and, and particularly since the usage of the uh, Libyan domain name extension became popular, so dot .ly oh, right, yeah. uh, oh, became very popular. And so we, you know, we like making those up, so we yeah. like to sort of launch a nice ad tech yeah. business called yeah. Repulsively <laughs> and things like that. And I, I like the I like the dropped vowel thing as well, so you just don't have the vowel between yeah. the D yeah. and the R. Tumblr. And and, yes, yeah. Tumblr. Whatever um, happened to that, eh? Well, Yahoo bought it yeah. and uh, put ads in it. Good ideas go to die. <laughs> um, <laughs> Final question: What three objects would you save from a house fire? And this is specifically These are from specific, your yeah. from my house. house, from your yeah. house. So the first thing I would save. Oh, this, you get people. It's not a um, family. Oh, family. And you can group yeah, them. yeah. You people oh, have done. Oh, well. Family and dog. It's, oh well, so so without, so living so. creatures come. Yes, yeah, so obviously you, you, yeah, they're, they're rescued first. Like, no, yeah, indeed, yeah. that's um, and that, yeah. that's good. So the first thing I would save is a is a boar's tooth on a gold mount and a gold chain, which is a a necklace that. Um, Dee, my girlfriend and partner in love has that was given to her by her grandmother and it's like talismanic for her and I think it's something that she would miss and it's irreplaceable I suspect, I mean not economically irreplaceable but just emotionally and and sentimentally irreplaceable so I think that for sure Um, I'm a book collector which not everybody knows and I think that given the speed at which we'd have to move i'd actually not take the most valuable book i own but i'd take um i take how by um sorry i'm terribly sorry i take i take angkor wat which is a book-length poem uh, by Allen ginsburg who was one of the the beat poets who wrote how you know on the road sure, and all yeah. that period and the reason why i take it is that it was it's an allegorical poem about the American bombing in Cambodia and Laos during the Vietnam War. And it was published in Paris because it wasn't able to be published in, in the US. And the copy I have is a copy that Ginsburg gave to the then foreign correspondent of the New York Times. And he's annotated it by hand through the copy, explaining some of the allegorical meaning and commenting on various things that happened. It's not the most valuable thing I am, but it's kind of, it's sort of, Again, it's completely um, it's lovely, isn't it? irreplaceable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I then want to say something in name because I'm sort of oddly parsimonious about certain things and obsessively organised about certain things. Very disorganised about other things. And I have a folder, and I know exactly where it is that has the full details of the insurance policy <laughs> of the house. So I would know. I so would get practical. What I would get. And so, in fact, that isn't the last question because uh, we have a these are random. A, these are hundred questions as a toolkit for careers, um, which we ask everyone. So if you could choose one from at random, from the school for life, from the school of life, from Alain de Botton. So if you could choose one at random, read it out and, and answer, answer it. it. Yeah. So this is totally random. Goodness. So the question is, if you could never do your ideal job, what might be an acceptable compromise? Well, the acceptable compromise manifestly is to be chief digital officer of, of, <laughs> of, of Group M because no one could describe that as their ideal job for a very specific reason. 
And one of the challenges of our industry is there aren't any 14 or 15 year olds alive unless their parents happen to work in the business that know what a media buyer or a media mm. agency yeah. actually is. And so there's no one that grows up and says, one day I'd like to be chief digital yeah. officer of, of, of Group M. I observe people all of the time now and I think my ideal job if I have my time again and I had the aptitude again is I'd, I'd, I'd like to be an engineer. I'm of the view that engineering is now in some respects the outstanding creative occupation and the idea of being able to realize things from an engineering point of view from a creative concept stage into actually manifesting and working particularly at scale beats the what's it's out of being chief digital officer of group fantastic Fantastic. that's brilliant that's the end of the questions can i ask as a book collector what is your most gifted book what's the book you give away the most oh out of your collection just so so this is not something i do a great deal so the sample size isn't that big Hmm. um but a favorite of mine is a book called the dictionary of imaginary places and it's a marvelous book and it's a thick volume and what it does is it's treated absolutely played with a straight bat and describes places like Utopia and places like Narnia and places like Lilliput and where there were maps in the original text. It reproduces the maps and talks about them in exactly the same way you would find a legitimate encyclopedia talking about real places so the dictionary of imaginary places is one of those books that you can kind of flick through and just yeah. open and just read about somewhere fantastic which which for someone who's as well traveled as you is a really interesting choice because yeah. it's all the places that you can't get with air miles well that's true i mean the, the traveling thing is interesting just generally yeah because there are people in our business that work and I'm, I'm, there's no sense of irony or self-deprecation when I say this, that work kind of much harder than, than I do. If you run a P&L, it has a set of responsibilities and a kind of beat and cadence to it mm. that says, oh my goodness, the month is coming up and how have we done? If you run a client then or a group of clients, you're driven by the agenda of those clients and the sometimes conflicting commercial deliverable of the agency together mm. with with what the deliverable of the clients are. And so those are the really, really challenging jobs. And if you run a, an operational competence like trading and your job is to extract value from the marketplace or whatever it is or build a planning tool, then there are certain deliverables. My job isn't characterized like that. And so I sort of almost feel that I've got this gorgeous seat and the way I describe it when I'm on some suitable narcotic or, or other, is I say, I have this extraordinary seat at the intersection of the disruptors and the disrupted. And I get a front row view yeah. of both of those things. And it's really intriguing to think about what the threats and opportunities are yeah. that are created by the disruptors and what the disrupted should do about it. So you think about the world in a kind of much broader way in that and so if if kind of just sort of processing brain cells and trying to articulate something can be described as hard work then yes it's hard work but the good thing about being in airports and on planes and stuff one i love the food i mean i almost never eat with full-size cutlery now and i and i eat on a tray um and and, and one of these most frequent decorations for love for me is as she walks up and down the dining room and says things like more bread for you more bread for you and i like that a great deal um and I've always said the most beautiful words in the English language were 
cabin crew seats for landing because it means you're getting off at the other end. Mm-hmm. But it's incredibly stimulating that when you show up in these different places and your job is to think about things and add context to them, it's marvelous. But what it isn't by any reasonable definition is is hard work in the way that other people do hard work. It can be tiring, but it's not hard work. And I have to say I'm unbelievably grateful um, for how it worked out. Thank you very much. This has been brilliant. Thank you very much. So, um, Rob Norman, your Chief Digital Officer of Group M, you're, you are a brilliant follow on LinkedIn. So I urge everyone to listen. I think for, for me, it was really, uh, uh, Sue asked me to write something on ad blocking and I did an okay job. I did all right. And then you published something a day later, which was half as long and at least twice as good. So um, I think you're the, you're the king of the edit and simplicity. So I think it's, it's definitely worth a follow. Um, thank you for spending some time with us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.